Welcome, friends and seekers, to the Gospel Inc. podcast, where ink meets inspiration and stories of faith come to life. I am your host, David Green, and while I'm not a preacher, I'm here to guide you on a refreshing journey through the pages of hope and salvation. Each week, we delve into different chapters of the Bible, unpacking the wisdom, uncovering the truths, and exploring the life-saving message within. Together, we will navigate the rich mosaic of God's Word, allowing it to illuminate our paths, enrich our spirits, and deepen our understanding of faith and life. Imagine navigating the complete life with the Bible as your compass, painting each day with the strokes of grace, love, and truth. Here at Gospel Inc., that is not just a dream. It is our shared journey. So why wait? Embark on an enlightening adventure with us. Let your spirit be stirred and your heart be filled with the warmth and ultimate truth. Stay tuned and stay blessed as we unfold Byron Hughes of the Gospel, only here on Gospel Inc. Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of Gospel Inc. I'm your host, David Green, and today we are journeying into the depths of one of the most dynamic and powerful chapters of the Bible, Revelations 20. Throughout history, scholars, theologians, and believers have grappled with the vivid imagery and profound messages contained within these pages. And chapter 20 is no exception. Here we encounter a narrative of cosmic consequences, where the tapestry of God's judgment and mercy unfolds, revealing to us the culmination of human history and the destiny of every soul. Whether you're driving, taking a walk, or cozying up with a cup of tea, I invite you to lean in, open your heart, and let the gravity of these truths sink deep. As we delve into this chapter, may we be reminded of the urgency of the gospel, the holiness of God, and the unparalleled hope we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So whether, so, without further ado, right, let's turn the pages to Revelations 20 and uncover its treasures together. So first, we're going to turn to Revelations chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. I call this the defeat of Satan and the reign of the saints. Here's what it says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized that dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So here's what we see. Heavenly intervention. The scene unfolds with a powerful angel descending from heaven. This message from God is armed with both the key to the abyss and the great chain, symbols of authority and restraint, indicating that Satan's time of unrestricted deception is coming to an end, finally. Then we see the defeat of the deceiver. Satan, often depicted as a dragon or serpent throughout scripture, is finally captured. The act of binding him for a millennium demonstrates God's control over evil and ensures a period where Satan's influence is curtailed. Then, But we see the temporary imprisonment, right? The confinement of Satan for a thousand years represents a significant, though not eternal, Paul's in his capacity to deceive the nations. Interestingly enough, his release after this period denotes that his full judgment is yet to come. So what are my takeaways? First, we see God's sovereign control. Despite the chaos and evil rampant in the world, God is in control. The temporary binding of Satan is a stark reminder that evil, no matter how pervasive, operates within the boundaries set by God. Next, we see respite from deception. The millennium reign signifies a period of peace, of righteousness, and the widespread knowledge of God. Without Satan's constant deception, humanity will experience a world where God's truth reigns supreme. Then, lastly, we see the anticipation of the final victory. Satan's temporary confinement points to the eventual permanent defeat. It serves as a prelude to the final judgment and the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. 
To summarize this message of Revelations chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, the temporary defeat of Satan highlights the undeniable power and authority of God. Even the greatest of adversaries is subject to God's will and purpose. As believers, it reinforces our hope in God's promise and his plan for a future where righteousness prevails. Next, we're going to move down to verses 4 through 5. This is called the first resurrection and the reign of the saints. Here's what it says. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So what we're seeing here, thrones of judgment, right? These thrones signify positions of authority, suggesting a reversal of roles. Those once persecuted and martyred for their faith in God are now elevated to a place of honor and are entrusted with authority to judge. Then we see witnesses for Christ. John sees the souls of martyrs, those who stood firm in their testimony of Jesus, even to the point of death. Their commitment to Christ in the face of the world's opposition is recognized and rewarded. Then we see the victory over the beast. Not all the souls John sees were martyred. Some resisted the beast, refusing to worship his image or take its mark. Their resistance signifies a loyalty to Christ over the world's false systems. And we see the reigning with Christ. These faithful souls experience a glorious resurrection, are given the honor of reigning with Christ during the millennium. Their reign serves as a testament to the promise and reward of faithfulness. And finally, we see the first resurrection. This resurrection, prior to the general resurrection of the dead, underscores the special honor and reward for those who have remained faithful to Christ amidst the trials and tribulations. So what are my takeaways for these verses? So what we see first is the reward for faithfulness. God sees and honors the faithfulness of his people, whether through martyrdom or resisting worldly temptations. Those who stay true to Christ receive a special resurrection and position in his kingdom. Next, we see the, the aspect of temporary versus eternal. The world's systems and powers are temporary, but the rewards of the kingdom are eternal. The martyrs and the faithful resisted the transient allure of the world for an eternal reign with Christ. Next, we see hope in persecution. These verses offers uh, hope and encouragement for those facing persecution. God's justice will prevail, and those who endure will be vindicated and rewarded. And lastly, we see the power of the resurrection. The first resurrection serves as a foretell of an ultimate victory of life over death, reminding believers of the transformative power of the gospel. To summarize this message, the faithful, whether martyrs or those who resisted the beast, are rewarded with a special resurrection and the privilege of reigning with Christ. This serves as a beacon of hope for all believers, reminding us that faithfulness to Christ, even in the face of adversity, will lead to eternal rewards. Next, we're going to move down to verse 6. This is the blessed and the holy. Here's what it says. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So I'm going to pause there. Blessed and holy. These two descriptors emphasize the special favor and sanctity bestowed upon those who participated in the first resurrection. They are set apart not just because of their faithfulness, but also because of the grace and mercy of God. 
Then we see the second death. The term second death refers to eternal separation from God and final judgment. Those who take part in the first resurrection are exempt from this final judgment, a profound testament to the eternal security and assurance believers have in Christ. Next, we see that they have a priestly role. Their designation as priests of God and of Christ signifies a special relationship and role. As priests, they will serve as mediators, worshipers, and representatives in the unique millennial kingdom. Next, we see them reigning with Christ. This promise is a recurring theme. It is an affirmation of the dignity, honor, and authority given to the faithful. The reign with Christ for a millennium is both a reward for their fidelity and a realization of God's kingdom promises. So my takeaways, right? One, ultimately, is the assurance of salvation. The promise that the second death has no power over the resurrected is a profound reminder of the believer's security in Christ. Regardless of the challenges faced in this life, eternal separation from God is not one of them. Then we see service in eternity. The designation as priest underscores that our service to God doesn't end with earthly life. In the age to come, believers have a role to serve, to worship, and represent God. Then we see God's faithfulness. The verse is a reminder of God's unyielding faithfulness to his promises. Those who are faithful to him will be honored, rewarded, and exalted in his kingdom. And lastly, we see living with an eternal perspective. Recognizing the promises associated with the first resurrection can inspire believers to live with eternal perspective, prioritizing faithfulness to Christ above all else. To summarize this message, those who are part of the first resurrection are blessed beyond measure. Not only are they spared from the second death, but they also enjoy a unique and honored position as priest in Christ, millennial reign. It's a powerful reminder of the rewards of faithfulness and the eternal promises God has to those who trust him. Next, we're going to go down to verses 7 through 8, the final deception and the defeat of Satan. Here's what it says. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So what we see here is the release of Satan. After the millennium, Satan's confinement ends. This release is in line with God's sovereign plan and purpose, even though the immediate reason is not explicitly detailed in the text. Next, we see the deception of the nations. Despite a millennium under Christ's reign, Satan still finds a receptive audience upon his release. His deceptive power is so great that he manages to gather a vast multitude from across the earth. Then we have Gog and Magog. These names echo prophecies from the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel 38 through 39, symbolizing forces opposing God. In Revelation, they represent global powers or nations that align with Satan in his final rebellion. Then lastly, we see the magnitude of the rebellion, right? The compromise of the rebellious forces to the sand in the sea underlines the vastness of the deception and the widespread nature of the revolt. This is a sand, I'm sorry, this is a sad commentary on man's uh, limitless ability to reject God and follow his own stubborn pride. Even after 10 centuries of peace and righteousness led by Christ himself, so many people will be willing to follow Satan that their number is like the sand of the sea. Once again, those who oppose God will be soundly defeated. This time, however, Satan is cast forever into the lake of fire. There will be no escape or temptation from the devil anymore. So my takeaways, the persistent nature of evil. Even after a prolonged period of Christ's direct reign on earth, evil finds a way to resurface. This highlights the deep-seated rebellion in human heart and the persistent nature of evil. Next, we see God's sovereign control. Despite the large-scale rebellion, God remains in control. 
Satan's release and subsequent uprising occur within the parameters of God's ultimate plan. Next, we see the necessity of eternal vigilance. No matter how long righteous reigns, believers must remain vigilant. Satan's ability to deceive after the millennial underscores the importance of constant resilience on God's truth and guidance. And lastly, we see a human free will. Even a world where Christ righteously reigns is manifested. Some choose to rebel. This emphasizes the gravity and the responsibility of human free will. We must follow God. Could you imagine seeing glorious Jesus Christ materialize and, and reign for a thousand years, and yet you still turn away from him? It, it, it boggles my mind. But to summarize this message, right? Following a millennial of peace in Christ's role, Satan's temporary release leads to a significant rebellion showcasing the depth of human depravity and the persistent nature of evil. However, even in this, God's sovereignty and overarching plans remains evident. This passage underscores the need for continued reliance on God and the discernment of his truth. Next, we see the final confrontation and eternal judgment of Satan. This is found in verses 9 through 10. Here's what it says. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. A fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. So what we see here, marched on the beloved city, Satan's vast forces surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, likely a reference to the new Jerusalem or the community of believers. This signifies the final confrontation between good versus evil. Then we see divine intervention. Just as Satan's forces seem poised for battle, divine judgment is swiftly executed. Fire from heaven, a symbol of divine wrath and purification, consumes the opposing armies, underscoring God's ultimate authority and power. Then we see the final judgment of Satan. Satan, the root of all deception and rebellion against God, meets his final and irreversible judgment. He is cast into the lake of fire, joining the beast and the false prophet, entities that symbolize worldly power and deception. Then we see the eternal punishment. Amen. The torment day and night forever and ever emphasizes the eternal nature of this punishment. It's the final and permanent end of the forces of evil with no chance of ever returning. So here are my takeaways. Triumph of God's righteousness. Despite the magnitude of the rebellion, God's righteousness prevails without fail. The immediate divine intervention underscores God's presence and the certainty of his victory. Then we see the finality of judgment. The eternal nature of Satan's punishment serves as a stark reminder of the finality of God's judgments. This not only marks the end of Satan, but also underscores the reality of eternal consequences. Then we see the end of deception. With Satan's eternal judgment, the primary source of deception and evil is eradicated. This moment signals the dawn of a new era where even evil no longer has a foothold. And lastly, we see hope for believers. Even when faced with insurmountable odds, believers can find hope in God's protective and victorious power. This passage reaffirms God's commitment to safeguarding his people. In summary, in the climatic battle between good versus evil, God's power and righteousness prevail unequivocally. Satan and his forces face their ultimate and internal judgment, marking the end of deception and rebellion against God forever. It's a profound reminder of God's unwavering sovereignty, justice, and the eternal hope believers have in him. Next, we're going to go down to verse 11, the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. 
So the great white throne, right? The grand and imposing image symbolizes the ultimate authority and purity of God's judgment. It is a pinnacle of divine justice where all accounts will be settled. Then Umhu was seated. Though the text doesn't explicitly name him, it is trenchantly understood that this is a reference to Jesus Christ, though whom judgment is rendered. The earth and sky fled away. The old creation, marred by sin and rebellion, cannot withstand the pure holiness of God's presence at this climatic moment. This indicates the end of the current cosmos and the impending arrival of the new heaven and the new earth. And then no place for them. The absolute nature of this transformation is underscored by the fact that no place was found for the old earth and sky, emphasizing a thorough end to the old order of things. So here are my takeaways. I got four. Irrefutable justice. The grandeur and purity of the great white throne reflect the absolute nature of God's justice. It's a moment where all will be held accountable and every deed, thought, and motive will be laid bare. Then we have a sovereign judge. Jesus, the one who gave himself for humanity, is also the one who will judge humanity. This intertwining of grace and justice in the person of Christ is very profound. Then we see the end of the old order. The fleeing of the earth and sky signals a total end to the old corrupted order, preparing the way for God's perfected new creation. Then we see the transience of the, pre uh, the present creation, right? The current heavens and earth, for all their majesty, are temporary in light of eternity. This serves as a reminder of the impermanence of the world as we know it today and the eternal nature of God's kingdom. In summary, this verse sets the stage for the ultimate judgment of humanity before God's throne. It underscores the gravity of God's justice, the finality of the old order, and the promise of renewal. It's a call for introspection, preparedness, and deeper appreciation for the transient nature of our present reality in the face of eternal truths. Next, we're going to go down to verse 12, the books of judgment. Here's what it says. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So all standing before the throne, right? This scene underscores the universality of judgment. Regardless of status, achievements, or influence in their earthly lives, everyone, great and small, stands equally before God's throne. The books were opened. These books record every action, thought, motive, deed of every individual on earth and throughout history. Nothing is hidden or overlooked. God's record is comprehensive. Next, we see the book of life, distinct from the other books. The book of life contains the names of those who have accepted God's offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the roster of the redeemed. And finally, we see judged by their deeds. While salvation is by faith, the books serve as a record to determine the nature of one's deeds, whether good or bad. This judgment determines rewards and consequences, but it's the book of life that determines eternal destiny. So here are my takeaways. Unbiased judgment. God's judgment is impartial. Every individual, regardless of their status or prominence on earth, will face the same just and righteous standard. Next, we see the weight of our actions. The fact that all actions are recorded reminds us of the weight and significance of our choices and behaviors. Every act, big or small, matters in the internal perspective. Then we see the central world, the book of life. While deeds are judged, it's one relationship with Christ reflected in the book of life that determines salvation. This emphasizes the importance of personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But finally, we see the hope in redemption. 
The presence of the book of life amid the books of deeds underscore God's grace and the hope available through Christ. While these are assessed, salvation is ultimately about God's redemptive work and our response to it. So to summarize, as the narrative reaches its crescendo with the final judgment, everyone faces the truth of their lives and choices. While deeds are meticulously recorded and assessed, it's one standing with Christ, as marked in the book of life, that seals one's eternal fate. This passage magnifies the gravity of our choices, the justice of God, and the paramount importance of a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Next, we're going to go down to verse 13. Here's what it says. Uh, well, first, I titled this, The Sea Gives Up the Dead. And here's what it says. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So we see the sea surrender. In ancient Jewish thought, the sea was often considered a place of chaos and mystery. The phrase, the sea gave up the dead, symbolized the totality of God's judgment. Not even the depths of the sea can hide the dead from facing the throne. Then we see death and Hades. These entities personify mortality in the realm of the dead, respectively. Their yielding of the dead signifies the end of their dominion and power and the comprehensive nature of the final judgment. And we see universal judgment. Every person from every realm, whether from the depths of the sea or the domains of death and Hades, faces judgment. No one is exempt, underscoring all-encompassing scope of God's justice. And then we see judgment by deeds. Continuity from the previous verse, individuals are assessed based on their deeds. God's judgment is both individual and precise, addressing each person's choices and actions. So here are my takeaways. God's inescapable justice, the comprehensive nature of the judgment, where even the traditionally obscured or hidden places give up their dead, emphasizes that there is no escaping the reach of God's justice. And we see the end of death. With death and Hades surrendering their dead, it symbolizes the ultimate defeat of death itself. This aligns with the promise that death will be swallowed up in victory, which is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Next, we see a personal accountability. Each person is judged according to what they had done. This underscores the personal nature of God's judgment and the individual responsibility we each bear for our actions. And lastly, we see hope amidst judgment. Even in the context of judgment, the underlining theme remains. There is hope in Christ. Those whose names are written in the book of life have an assurance of eternal life. So in summary, this verse emphasizes the exhaustive and impartial nature of God's final judgment. From the most obscure places to the realms of death, all will face God's throne. While the passage speaks of accountability and justice, it also hints at the impending victory over death and the hope found in Jesus Christ. Next, we're going to go down to verse 14, titled, The Lake of Fire and the Second Death. Here's what it says. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So death and Hades is cast out. Both death and Hades, personifies of mortality in the realm of the departed, are cast into the lake of fire. This signifies the final eradication of death itself and the cessation of the intermarry state of the dead. Then we see the second death. The term second death refers to the ultimate and eternal separation from God, which is far more fearsome than physical death. It is the final state of the wicked, marked by eternal separation from the presence, peace, and blessings of God. Then we see the lake of fire. The lake of fire symbolizes the place of eternal punishment, and his introduction here prepares readers for the finality of judgment described in subsequent verses. So my takeaways. End of mortality. The casting of death into the lake of fire signifies the triumphant over mortality. In the new heavens and a new earth, death will be no more. Then the severity of eternal separation. 
the concept of the second death drives home the gravity of eternal separation from God. While physical death is a transient state, the second death is permanent and definitive. Next, we see the holiness of God. The existence of the lake of fire emphasizes God's holiness and intolerance for sin. It's a somber reminder of the consequences of sin and rebellion against God. And lastly, the urgency of salvation. Knowing the reality of the second death underscores the critical importance of salvation through Jesus Christ. There is an urgent call to turn to Christ, the only way to escape the second death. In summary, the eternal judgment of death in Hades highlights God's ultimate victory over death in the grave. Yet this verse also serves as a sobering reminder of the finality of the second death and the eternal consequences awaiting those who are not found in the book of life. It's called to recognize the gravity of eternity, the holiness of God, and the priceless gift of salvation offered through Jesus Christ. Next, we're going to go down to verse 15, the final fate of the unredeemed. Here's what it says. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life. As previously noted, this book contains the names of those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. It is a vine register of the divine, redeemed. Eternal consequences. The sober consequences for those not found in the book of life is being cast into the lake of fire, representing eternal separation from God and everlasting punishment. Next, the ultimate destiny determined. This verse underscores that the determining factor of one's eternal fate is not solely based on the deeds of morality, but on one's relationship with Christ and their inclusion in the book of life. Lastly, we see God's judgment is complete. At this point in Revelation, victory over death and evil is complete. Every harm, every wrong, and every sin has been punished. Every person who followed God has been restored and rescued. Satan is gone forever. All wrongs have been made right. What follows is the next chapters are John's visions of eternity. Uh, believers will share with Christ. So here are my takeaways. Solemn reality. The stark image serves as a somber reminder of the ultimate reality of heaven and hell. It accentuates the gravity of the choices made in this life and their eternal ramifications. Next, we see grace and judgment. This passage showcases the dual aspects of God's nature, grace and judgment. While he offers salvation freely to all who would accept it, there is also the righteous judgment for those who reject his gift. Next is the call to faith. The critical factor for escaping the lake of fire is having one's name in the book of life. This underscores the importance of personal faith in Jesus Christ and the urgency of the gospel's message. Then value of every soul. Each individual's eternal destiny hinges on their relationship with Christ. This should drive believers to share the gospel passionately, understanding the immeasurable value of every soul. In summary, this climatic verse of the chapter brings to focus the eternal destiny of every individual. It serves as a poignant reminder of the finality of the judgment and the unyielding consequences of one's choices regarding Christ. Yet amidst this psalmody, it also echoes the overarching theme of Revelations, the victory of Christ and the hope available to all through him. So as we draw to a close on this deep dive in Revelations 20, I hope you feel both the weight and the wonder of this message. In the shadows of prophecy, amidst the fiery images and profound symbols, there lies an enduring truth. Our God is sovereign over all. In the ebb and flows of history, through time of joy and trial, His purpose and love remains unshakable. Dear listeners, let the truth of today's study serve as a beacon in your journey of faith. Remember that no matter the challenges you face, the uncertainties of life, or the questions that linger, the gospel's message stands firm. We have a Savior who has triumphant, a hope that is steadfast, and an eternal destiny that's secure in Him. 
May you move forward with a renewed spirit, drawing strength from the knowledge that the creator of the universe knows your name, cherishes your soul, and inscribed you in the book of life. Go forth with courage, share the good news with zeal, and let the love of Christ shine through you, touching hearts and transforming lives. Thank you for joining me today on Gospel Link Podcast. I am David Green, reminding you to stay anchored in faith, fervent in love, and fearlessly in proclaiming the gospel. Until next time, God bless you abundantly. Today, as we delve deeply into the chapter of the Bible, let our hearts be tuned to the resounding echoes of divine truth and hope that transcends the ages and whispers fervently to our spirits every day. In the swirling torments of time, marked by uncertainty and confusion, and the shadows of persecution, let us anchor ourselves in the unshakable reality of Christ's sovereignty. He reigns supreme, his authority is unyielding, and his love is unfailing. Remember, he is the triumphant king who holds the keys to life and death, whose resurrected power pulses in our veins of creation, promising us victory over the grave and the gift of eternal life. As we tread the pages that unfold the visions granted to John on the rugged terrain of island of Potmos, let us not forget the context of this revelation. Potmos, a place of isolation and exile, mirrors the depths and despair and abandonment. Yet, it is here, amid the barren landscape, that the radiant light of God's presence pierces the veil of darkness, illuminating the path of hope, assurance, and eternal promises. Here it states, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the key to death and Hades. In the face of towering empires and oppressive John, the apostle of love, received the unyielding words of Christ, a message of flame with resolute courage and unyielding victory. These wars breathe life and resilience into the fledging Christian community, battered by the tempest and persecution and fear of the overarching empire. But here he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written because the time is near. Let this blessing permeate our very beings, infusing us with the strength and fortitude as we navigate the pathway of our lives. May the profound words and visions of revelations fill our spirits with unwavering assurance in Christ's ultimate victory and eternal reign. In the mosaic of divine revelations, may we glimpse the celestial tapestry of God's unending love and faithfulness. As we close this reflection, let us carry forth the flame of hope ignited by the resplendent visions of John, allowing its light to guide our steps, dispel our fears, and deepen our unwavering allegiance to our risen Lord. I pray that our hearts may ever be strengthened, our spirits ever emboldened, and our lives ever anchored in the boundless ocean of God's eternal paradise. In precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I say amen. I want to close today with a simple prayer. If you would, please close your eyes and bow your head with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins today, and I invite you to come into my heart and come into my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, remember, saying this prayer or any other prayer will not save you by itself. It is the genuine faith and conviction in your heart that God cares about. 
The words are simply a way for you to express your faith and commitment to God. The true salvation experience comes from truly believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, feeling remorse for your sins, and living a life that shows commitment to following His teachings. Now, I want to thank you, right? Thank you for following with me today, for listening to my words. If you found my content of value, I invite you to click the subscribe button. Over the next few weeks, our journey will further unfold into the chapters of Revelations. Your insights are important to me. If there's anything you disagree with or would like to share feedback on, please don't hesitate to leave me a comment. In future episodes, I plan to review comments on the podcast because engaging discussion often leads to deeper understanding. And perhaps God has granted you insight into his divine promises that could enlighten us all. Wishing you a blessed and joyful week.